0: Welcome to the Jerusalem Jones Podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Hansen, a.k.a. Jerusalem Jones of Treasures in Time. That's my company, and this is my podcast. I'm a bit of a thespian, so let me bring history to life with a pinch of theatrical flair. Don't forget to subscribe as we plow into the past. This series is called, Dig Deeper, the Untold Stories of Biblical Archaeology. Episode 14, Digging Up Masada. Along the western shore of the Dead Sea, amid the vast and unforgiving wilderness of Judea, we find a precipitous plateau, isolated by millions of years of erosion, that turned it into an impregnable fortress. The Hebrew word for fortress is Matsada masada, by which it is still called to this day. Its greatest claim to fame derives from events that transpired at the end of the great revolt against Rome when for three brave years seventy to seventy-three of the Common Era. The freedom fighters on this ancient Gibraltar, known as the Sicarii, managed to hold off 10,000 Roman troops armed with every contemporary siege weapon. Finally, a battering ram breached the wall. Masada was originally fortified by the kings of the Hasmonean dynasty, but it was King Herod the Great who masterminded the amazing structures still visible. Herod, it's been observed, enjoyed confounding nature, erecting sumptuous palaces in barren wastelands. And Masada was perhaps his most ambitious. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus Flavius describes the only approaches. It could only be reached by two narrow and difficult paths, from Lake Asphaltis on the east and from the hills to the west. The former they call the snake, since it resembles a reptile in its narrow windings back and forth along breathtaking precipices until it finally reaches a plain at the summit on which. Masada stood. The snake path could only be climbed in a single file line while under constant threat from above. Herod surrounded the entire summit with a casemate wall honeycombed with individual rooms, also described by Josephus. He also built a wall round about the entire top of the hill, seven furlongs long. It was composed of white stone, its height was twelve, and its breadth eight cubits. There were also erected upon that wall thirty-eight towers, each of them fifty cubits high, out of which you might pass into lesser edifices, which were built on the inside, round the entire wall. In order to provide sufficient water in such a barren setting, Herod had two rows of cisterns cut into the rock face, above the ravine, known in Arabic as a wadi, running along the northwest side of the plateau. During the rainy season, dams collected the water, which flowed via an aqueduct to the cisterns. These cisterns held roughly 40,000 cubic meters of water. When it came to Herod's accommodations on Masada, the most incredible was the so-called Hanging Palace, built into the north end of the rock at three levels. The upper level rested on the summit, while the other two levels were on steps down the cliff face. They were accessed by spiraling square staircases. While the foundations of the two upper levels are still discernible, only the lowest level remains sufficiently intact to attempt an accurate reconstruction. There are, in fact, enough remains To reconstruct even the decorations of the main building, which looked similar to the famous Roman city of Pompeii, engulfed in the first century by lava from Mount Vesuvius. There were flat panels of color, interspersed with panels painted to look like marble. There was also a colonnaded court with a small private bathhouse attached. Here under a thick layer of debris were found the remains of three skeletons of a man, a woman and a child. The beautifully braided hair of the woman was preserved and her sandals were found intact next to her. Also hundreds of small bronze scales of the man's armor, probably booty taken by the Romans. In addition to the hanging palace, there was an even larger royal accommodation in the middle of the west side of the plateau. The southeast portion of this imposing structure consisted of the royal quarters. To the right were storerooms, and in the northeast wing were an assortment of kitchens and workshops. Opposite them was an administrative building. While the decoration is not as well preserved as in the hanging palace, two elaborate mosaic floors, almost intact, were uncovered in the area of Herod's private bathhouses. They are Greco-Roman in style and are the best preserved rooms in the palace. The changing room with a fine mosaic leads off to a small tepidarium, or warm room. That in turn leads to a caldarium, or hot room, featuring a bath set into an alcove at the far end. A furnace behind the bath heated both the room and the water. A flight of steps on the opposite side of the changing room descend to a cold plunge bath. Josephus describes it. The furniture also of the edifices and of the cloisters and of the bats was of great variety and very costly. And these buildings were supported by pillars of single stones on every side. The walls and also the floors of the edifices were paved with stones of several colors. He also had cut many and great pits, as reservoirs of water, out of the rocks, at every one of the places that were inhabited, both above and round about the palace. And before the wall, and by this contrivance, he endeavored to have water for several uses, as if there had been fountains there. Near two of Herod's bathtubs is an enclosure whose inside walls are dotted with square holes. Believe it or not, this was a large desert swimming pool, and the holes were lockers for bathers' clothes. A public bathhouse, probably built for Herod's foreign visitors, was situated immediately behind the hanging palace. It resembles Herod's other bath complexes at both Herodium and Jericho. The decoration in the changing room and the tepidarium are particularly well preserved. We also find a boiler room where the bath water was heated. Hot air from the furnace was drawn under the floor of the caldarium, which was raised on small columns a hypocaust system. Behind the wall plaster are the remains of clay pipes which conveyed the hot air up the walls in order to heat the whole room. There were also three other buildings that might be described as palaces and which may have been residences for Herod's own family and his wife's family and who so despised each other that they had to be kept separate. Elsewhere on Masada were found the remains of two Mikvaot, ritual immersion baths, which, in order to be kosher, had to be at least partly filled with pure rainwater. Remains have been found of the channel for the rainwater, the rainwater tank, and a pool for washing hands and feet before bathing, in addition to the actual bath. We also have at Masada, one of the most ancient synagogues in Israel. What say ye, Sherlock? When the uh, Sicarii took over the place at the outset of the great revolt, they may have converted an earlier structure adding masonry benches along the walls and a room at the rear to house scrolls of the Torah. But it's also possible that a synagogue to begin with was what we're looking at when the Hasmonians first occupied the site and it was only modified by the Sicarii. Of course, Herod would have had no interest whatsoever in a synagogue So how could it have been a synagogue in his day? Therein lies the mystery, Watson. In any case, an ostracon bearing the inscription Ma'aser koin, tithe for the priest, was found inside the synagogue, along with fragments of two scrolls from Deuteronomy and Ezekiel 37, the famous Dry Bones passage. Interestingly, the Masada synagogue is similar in form to one uncovered at Herodium, which had been Herod's dining room until the zealots occupied the site. Yet neither of the synagogues faces Jerusalem. Along the outer wall of the complex, not far from the synagogue, the excavations uncovered a number of badly mangled scroll fragments, including portions of the apocryphal book of Ben Sira, and a mystical text known as the Song of Sabbath Sacrifices. The only other copy of this work known to exist in the world was found among the Cave Four fragments at Qumran. It was thus suggested that a group of Dead Sea sectarians Presumably the Essenes must have fled their community in advance of the Romans and joined the radical sect of Sicarii on top of Masada. Other artifacts recovered from Masada include imported jugs or amphoras, one broken shard of which mentions King Herod by name. Also found were assorted molded radial oil lamps from the first century. But the most controversial of all discoveries was an assortment of ostraca, or inscribed broken pot shards, bearing Hebrew names. One of them reads Ben Yair, the commander of the Sikari, who for months at the end of the Great Revolt held off the Roman juggernaut. Josephus relates what he claims to have been the actual words of the rebel leader. Long ago we decided to serve neither Roman nor anyone else except God. And now the time has come to verify that resolution by action. We who were the first to revolt, and are the last in arms against the Romans, must not disgrace ourselves by letting our wives die dishonored and our children enslaved. We still have the free choice of a noble debt with those we hold dear. When they are gone, let us render a generous service to each other. But first we must destroy our property and the fortress by fire, sparing only our provisions so that the Romans will know it was not hunger that subdued us, but that we preferred death to slavery. Life, not death, is man's misfortune, for death liberates the soul from its imprisonment in a mortal body. Why then? should we fear death, who welcome the calm of sleep. Let us die as free men with our wives and children and deny the Romans their joy of victory. Let us rather strike them with amazement at our brave death. Josephus relates what happens next. While they embraced their wives, and took their children in their arms, clinging in tears to their parting kisses, they killed them. When all were put to death, they gathered together their effects, and set fire to them. Then they chose by lot ten of their number, to kill the rest. They lay down beside their dead wives and children, and, flinging their arms around them, offered their throats to those who slaughtered them all. The ten then cast lots, and he on whom it fell killed the other nine. He then looked about to see that all were dead, set fire to the place, and finally drove his sword through his body, falling beside his family. Two women and five children, however, escaped by hiding in an underground aqueduct during the massacre. The victims numbered 960. Was this account true? Another archaeological testimony is the Roman ramp that still rises, almost to the summit, at the center of the western face of the fortress. It was by this that the Romans hauled their siege engines to the very top and pounded down the walls only to be greeted by an awful silence that hung over the place. After these horrific events, the site lay abandoned for nineteen long centuries until Yigael Yadin, archaeologist and former Israel Army Chief of Staff, undertook major excavations from 1963 to 1965. Many of the ancient buildings have been restored from their remains, as have the wall paintings of Herod's two main palaces, as well as his Roman-style bathhouses. Restoration work was also done on the synagogue, storehouses, and houses of the Jewish rebels. The meter-high wall that the Romans built around Masada can again be seen, together with 11 barracks for the Roman soldiers just outside this wall. Most haunting were the skeletal remains of 28 people unearthed at Masada. The sparse remains of another 24 people were found in a cave at the base of the cliff. Although Yigael Yadin was unsure of their ethnicity, the rabbinical establishment concluded that they were the remains of the Jewish defenders, and in 1969 they were reburied as Jews in a state ceremony. What say ye, Sherlock?" Ah, but take note, Watson. Pig bones were also present, occasionally being used in Roman burials due to pig sacrifices, and that may well indicate that the remains belong to non-Jewish Roman soldiers or, or civilians who occupied the site before or after the siege which means that the wrong people may have been buried in the Jewish cemetery. Other issues have surfaced as well. As Harvard professor Shaye Cohen has observed, if, as Josephus says, the Romans found 960 corpses in the palace, they would not have dragged 24 of them across the plateau in order to lower them carefully into a cave located on a slope where one false step meant death. The obvious and simple procedure for the Romans was to take the corpses out of the palace and toss them over the nearest cliff. Pig bones notwithstanding, the twenty-four skeletons in the cave might have been the remains of Jews who attempted to hide from the Romans but were discovered and killed? Or did they commit suicide? At the very least, archaeology reveals that Josephus's narrative is incomplete and inaccurate. Was anything Josephus wrote the truth? Did the Sicarii commit suicide? Did the Romans discover corpses when they arrived at the summit? Some suggest that the Sicarii were captured by the Romans and massacred or that they fought the Romans and were killed, and that Josephus, whose fondness for literary commonplaces and types is well-known, substituted a collective suicide story for the truth. (laughs) Perhaps… These conjectures, Watson. Can neither be verified nor refuted. But we may readily believe that the Josephus story has a basis in fact. First, it is plausible. Many Jews committed suicide during the crucial moments of the war of 66 to 70 CE. Second, the Masada story is too complex be dismissed as a literary fiction. Why should Josephus have invented such a story? The Sicarii did not have to commit suicide to make their point clear. Death in battle would have served just as well. We might conclude, then, that Josephus attempted to be reasonably accurate in matters which were verifiable by the Romans. He refrained from inventing glorious military actions for the Sicarii, and we may assume that he had some basis in fact for ascribing murder-suicide to them. At least some of the Sicarii must have been killed by their own hands rather than face the Romans. This fact was exaggerated and embellished. but in the eyes of many scholars, a fact nonetheless. But, as with so many other archaeological issues, the jury remains out, and such questions remain open. In the final analysis, archaeology can reveal incredible detail, not only of the monumental structures of antiquity, and the historical mysteries surrounding them, but of the daily lives of those who inhabited them, from kings and potentates to house servants and slaves. The unconsidered trifles from each archaeological dig indeed speak volumes. Yet archaeology cannot derive meaning from what it uncovers. It's up to us to find the lessons knowing that those who fail to learn from the mistakes of the past are condemned to repeat them. Two millennia ago, the site fell victim to the Judean desert, which slowly and relentlessly reclaimed it. Yet today, the lonely desert fortress has been reborn, its rugged outline standing sentinel against the deep cerulean sky. The excavated plateau reminds us of many things, the error of misplaced faith, the danger of militant fanaticism, but also the desire above all of a people called Israel to live in freedom in their own land. The English poet Percy Bysshe Shelley might as well have been writing of the ruin of Masada when he penned these classic verses. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away.